Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Well, we are, like I said before, beginning a new series this uh, today, uh, this Advent series, which is really the beginning of a longer series that will extend into the new year on generosity and giving. So we begin with this Advent series looking at the coming of Jesus, uh, and then in the new year we'll be talking more about how we respond with our giving. So this Advent series I'm calling He Loved Us First um, as a foundation, as a basis for why we give of ourselves. Why are Christians called to sacrificially give of ourselves for other people and for God in the world? Um, This is the foundation of that. This is where we begin uh, with this story of Advent as Christians. Um, And we're going to begin that story in the book of Isaiah, which is a lot of fun. Isaiah is a ton of fun. It's scary. It's hopeful. It's beautiful. And it's, it's desolate at the same time. Um, And so we're going to get more into that after Terry comes and reads our scripture for today, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. Thank you. Good morning. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing spoil. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and their rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Terry. All right, I don't have any clever introduction this week. Uh, There's a lot to get into here because we're popping ourselves right into this book of Isaiah. Uh, And I imagine that for most of us in this room, you only really open the book of Isaiah a couple times a year. Uh, mostly at Christmas time when you're reading like those really nice prophecies about Jesus that we just read. Um, the problem with the nice prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah is that they fall right in the middle of a whole bunch of like prophetic judgments against the nation of Israel. We don't like to read those, so we jump right to the nice stuff that makes us feel good. Um, the problem is if we jump to the stuff that makes us feel good, we don't understand why it's there. And so we're going to go back and we're going to do a little bit of history here. Yeah, history, that that, that, that uh, subject you hated in school. Um, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of history. <clears throat> Hopefully it's not going to be dry as dust. But um, God here is talking to his people in the nation of Judah. At this point in the 700s BC, the nation of Israel has been separated into two. In the north is Israel or Samaria or Ephraim. It's referred to all three ways right here in the book of Isaiah. And in the south is the nation of Judah. Judah is much smaller geographically, but Judah includes Jerusalem, the capital where the temple is. And so Judah is 
incredibly important. And Isaiah is a citizen of Judah. He's a citizen of Jerusalem. He lives in Jerusalem. And God calls him out as a prophet. Now, a prophet is not a person who tells the future. It's not what a prophet does. A prophet is someone who speaks the literal words of God. A prophet is someone who God has spoken to, and then the prophet relays the message God has given to the people God is telling them to to give it to. Now, that includes foretelling the future when God says, hey, I'm going to do this, 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 or this. And so that's where we get the idea of prophecy is telling the future from, is because oftentimes prophets, who are the mouthpieces of God, tell the people of God what God is going to do, and that's foretelling the future, because God is good on his word. He didn't go back on his word. So we, we jump here into Isaiah chapter 9, and at this point, Isaiah has been talking to the king of Judah, King Ahaz of Judah, and they've got this big problem. You see, right now, the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, it's not really a nation, it's an empire, the empire of Assyria has risen up and is incredibly powerful, and they're kind of taking over everybody. That's what empires do, right? Empires just swallow up everybody. They're like amoebas. They just come in and they just take over. And they incorporate all of these smaller nations into their empire. And so if you're a small nation like Judah or Israel or Syria at this time, and you see a big bad empire rise up, you start to get a little afraid. So what happens is these smaller nations often, they'll team up. They'll create these treaties so that they can stand opposed to the big empires. And so a bunch of little smaller nations, they'll get together. Normally, they would war with each other, but they'll get together and be like, no, 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 we we need to get together, we need to put together a little faction so that when Assyria comes against us, they can't swallow us up. And that's what's happening. Ahaz is um, up on kind of the, the parapets of the wall, the city wall. He's looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he's looking out from the city of Jerusalem, which is up on a hill, out over the land that he is king over. And he's just imagining what's going to happen when Assyria comes. When Assyria comes and besieges Jerusalem. That's his, they put all their army all the way around Jerusalem so nobody can get in or out. No food or water can get in or out. And Ahaz is up here imagining what's going to happen when Assyria comes. And he's toying in his mind with teaming up with the king of Israel to the north and the king of Syria to the north of them. And so the prophet Isaiah comes up. And Isaiah, speaking on God's behalf, says to Ahaz, don't do that. Trust in God to protect the nation of Judah. He even even makes a joke. In chapter 10, actually just following this, Isaiah is still talking to Ahaz. And he's saying, look, you know the kings of these nations. You know they're nothing impressive. Your God is the one you need to trust in. Not these little men that you want to team up with. God will protect you from Assyria, not them. And earlier in the book, Isaiah even goes so far as to say to Ahaz, the king of of Judah, hey man, you can even ask for a sign from God. Now this is strictly prohibited in the Old Testament. Like, according to the law, you do not ask God for a sign of his faithfulness. You trust God and that's it. You don't put God to the test. That's what the law says. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, yo, God is saying you can put him to the test on this. You can ask for a sign. And Ahaz, who is not a faithful Jew, Ahaz, who is not like the most religious guy, is like, no, the law says I shouldn't do that, so I won't. And Isaiah is like, you can test God's patience? Like he's telling you, you can break the rules, man. 
You're already breaking the rules anyway. You might as well break this one because God told you you could. And Ahaz is like, nope, I won't do that. I'm too faithful. I am the king after all. And Isaiah just shakes his head, right? And kind of walks away. Now, at this point in the history of Judah, God is pretty upset with his nation. He's pretty upset with his people. You see, God had called the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt hundreds of years earlier. He had taken them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and created the nation of Israel. And when he did that, God gave them one overriding law, one overriding rule over everything else, which was, be holy as I am holy. And then God gave them the Ten Commandments to spell out what that means, to be holy like God is holy. And then God gave them laws based on the Ten Commandments to help them figure out what it meant, how they should live and act. And the nation hasn't been doing this at all. Oh, they've been doing like the the religious ritual stuff because that's cultural. It's what they are. It's like how I grew up in Tennessee in cultural Christianity. We went to church on Sunday, but what you did on Monday through Saturday, nah. And that's kind of how the people are. They do the religious rituals. They do the stuff. They make the sacrifices. They go to the temple. They listen to the priests. But then they go and they oppress the poor among them. And they rip people off. And they lend money at usurious rates. And they do everything that the law of God has told them not to do to each other. To the point that God, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, says, your sacrifices, your stuff, it makes me sick. I can't stand your religious rituals. I can't stand all the the stuff that you're doing in devotion to me when you're hating each other and you're hurting each other. I can't stand it. This is what the first five chapters of Isaiah say. As kind of the preamble to the book to give you an image. It's this cycle of judgments and promises where God says, I'm going to judge you because you are not being holy. And you can see that not in your religious rituals, not in the feast days, not in the holidays, not in the sacrifices you make at the temple. You can see that in the way you treat each other. Your holiness gets most worked out in the way you treat the people who have less than you. Less power, less resources, less social clout. Your holiness gets revealed in the way that you treat the people who you perceive to be as less than you. And the way that you guys are treating each other is making me sick, God says. But then he he cycles back around with a cycle of promises. So God pronounces these judgments over the nation of Judah and says, Assyria is coming for you, and I'm going to let them do it because of the way that you've been behaving, but I promise to rescue you. I promise to come to you. I promise to restore you. Assyria is going to come, and they're not going to wipe out everybody. There's going to be a group that remains who are faithful to me, and through them, I am going to bring you back to flourishing. I'm going to bring you back. And so that's where we find ourselves. Those first five chapters, God's talking about judgment and promises. And then in chapter six, we jump into the story where Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz and saying, trust in the Lord, not in the armies of Israel or Syria. Trust in God. Lead the people in the way that they are supposed to be led. Lead the people to be holy and God will save you. And it's in that conversation now that we come to these verses, to chapter nine. Where it begins with verse 1, which I didn't have Terry read, but 
Isaiah says here, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Now, in chapter 8, Isaiah has told Ahaz about the coming invasion from Assyria. He's told him about the coming judgment, where God is going to allow the empire of Assyria to come in and to bring judgment upon Israel. And now he's prophesying this future time of peace. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, hey, you're going to see Assyria come in, and you're going to see him wipe out Israel. You're going to watch this happen, Ahaz. But no, even as you watch this destruction of the neighbor to the north, even as you watch the destruction of Israel, know that God has a plan for restoration for the future. That God is going to bring restoration. He's going to bring flourishing. He's going to bring prosperity back to his people. And that's what we read about here in chapter 9, where Isaiah is reassuring Ahaz. You're going to see this destruction happen up north, and you're going to be scared. But know that God has a good plan for his people. God will not abandon his people. And so that's where we begin, with the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. This is Isaiah prophesying that God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten the people who are disobedient to him, who are rebellious to him. The people are walking in darkness because they've rejected God. They're walking in darkness because they haven't been living as holy people. They haven't been reflecting God's character in the world. They've been mistreating each other and oppressing the poor and hurting each other. And so they're walking in darkness apart from God's light. And here God is saying, I haven't forgotten you. I'm not going to let you stay in darkness. And, And this is the beginning of good news. Because from this perspective... God's people who are disobedient are walking in darkness. But the Gentiles, that is all of us who are, who are not ethnically Jewish, we're always walking in darkness. <laughs> We've been in darkness. God chose the people of Israel. He chose these children for his own so that they would be a light to the nations. But that means the nations don't have the light. So what God is saying is all you people who are walking in darkness, either by your own disobedience or because you're a Gentile, a light is coming. I haven't forgotten you. God didn't choose the nation of Israel just to be his special little people and live in their bubble and never interact with the rest of the world. And to like, God is not so hateful of everybody in the world that he was like, I'm going to save you guys and damn the rest of them. God called his people, he called the nation of Israel to be a light to the world, to show his character to the world. When the people are living holy as God is holy, they are a beacon of his light and love to the rest of the world, to the nations. And so here God begins this promise to Judah, this promise to his people that I have not forgotten those in darkness and be grateful for that because that's where you and I have been. We have been walking in darkness. We are a people apart from God walking in the darkness of the world. 
And God comes to you and to me, we who couldn't make light for ourselves, we who stumble around in the darkness, we who have rejected God and not looked toward him, not looked for him, not known any or cared anything about him. God comes to us and says, I haven't forgotten you. I've not forgotten you. And some of y'all feel forgotten. Some of us feel forgotten. I feel forgotten. There's so many times in my life I feel God's, like God's forgotten me. This is one of the reasons I love the Old Testament and I love the Psalms. Christians, we have this weird thing where we're not honest with God about our feelings. We think we've got to be all like dressed up and made up and like come to God all like put together and be like, okay, God, here I am. Like, take me now because I'm all clean and dressed up and I'm good. The Jewish scriptures have none of that. In fact, when the, when the people of God come to him trying to be all dressed up, God's like, no, 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 no. I know you, and that's not you. The, the Jewish scriptures and Jewish writings throughout history, they don't have any of that pretense with God. These are a people who are radically honest with God. Read some of the writings from the Holocaust. I mean, go back and read some of the great writers from the Holocaust. These are people who are straight up honest with God. Where the hell are you? Because we are living in hell, and we don't see you anywhere. What's going on? You read the Psalms, and over and over, more Psalms are Psalms of anger than anything else. They're, songs of, they're Psalms of frustration with God, not seeing where God is, or they're songs of frustration about the pressures that people are feeling from the outside nations. The Jewish people and the Jewish scriptures have an honesty with God that so many Christians lack. And we need to reclaim that. Because God already knows your heart. He already knows what you're feeling. And, and listen here, listen here. I think we dress ourselves up because we're afraid of offending God. Your feelings can't offend God. God is bigger than that. God can take it. He can take your anger, he can take your frustration, he can take your doubts, he can take your fears, he can take everything you want to throw at him. What he can't take is your dishonesty. God wants you to be radically honest with him with where you are, and some of us right now feel abandoned, forgotten in the dark. And in this promise, God is saying, I have not forgotten you. The dark will last for a time, but light is dawning. Light will come. Do not fear that you will forever remain in this dark away from my presence. I am coming to you, God says to his people who are suffering. And then this, this promise goes on. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. I love that this is in the present tense. I love that this, it's almost past tense. Like, this is what God has done. This is a promise for the future, though. God hasn't done this yet at the time that this is being written, at the time this is being said, but it's such a solid, firm promise. 
God's word is so secure that it can be spoken of as though it's present tense, as though God's already done it. You can take it to the bank because it's true, because God doesn't fail his word ever. When God makes a promise, it is solid. He will not go back on it, no matter what. And it is so sure that he can talk about it as though it's already done. And this is what hope is. We use the word hope all wrong. All the time. We use the word hope all wrong. I hope it, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope it doesn't snow today. Or I hope it does snow today. I hope, I hope, I hope. We use it in this really weak, like, mild optimism way. I kind of hope this thing happens or I hope this doesn't happen. Biblical hope is nothing like that. Biblical hope is a rock-solid confidence in the promises that God has made. Biblical hope is a confident expectation in the future that God has already promised. It's walking as though it's already happened. It's living as though God's promises are already a reality, are already true. That's what biblical hope is. And that's why Isaiah can say with such confidence that these promises are going to come true as though they already have. Because God's word is secure. It is firm. It holds. And it is a foundation you can build your life on and live in hope, in the confident expectation that these things will happen. And so God makes these promises. God will break the yoke of the oppressor. He will end the strife between nations. He will destroy the garments and the, and the tools of war. God will bring peace everlasting. God will bring flourishing to his people who struggle and who suffer. This is the hope in which God's people live. Now how's he going to do this? How's God going to make this happen? Because there's still got to be some agency, right? There's still got to be some way that he makes it. It does not have God is going to snap his fingers and all of a sudden everything's just going to change. God doesn't work in magic like that. He works through people. And he, God gets his hands dirty in the messy realities and the messy world that we live in. And he moves the nations and he works through people. And so God tells us exactly how he's going to accomplish this. Here in verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So how is God going to make good on his promises? He's going to send a king. He's going to send a good king. A king with his own character. He's going to send a king who is just like him, who is holy as God is holy. Just as God called the nation to be so many years ago when he created them out of slavery. God is going to bring them a king. Now the problem is they had a king. He, he wasn't much home to write, write home about. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't that great. Ahaz wasn't a great king. The king who came after Ahaz, right after Ahaz, not such a great king either. 
So, so what in the world are you talking about? Because they've got a king, and the king's not great. And the next guy up, he ain't that great either. And then comes this king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is righteous before God. He's a good king. But it's under the reign of Hezekiah that the Assyrian Empire comes in and kind of makes Judah its vassal state. They, they don't take them over. They don't, they don't swallow them up. But, but Hezekiah has to pay, pay these big fees to Assyria so that they won't come in and take them over. He has to make tribute to Assyria. And so Hezekiah looks like he might be the guy, but not quite. And then there are other kings. And then the people get taken off into exile in Judah and in Babylon for 70 plus years. And then they come back and they try and reestablish. And there's never another king like David. There's never another king like the king that they look up to. There's never a king like this is described. And it looks like the people are going to live in disappointment. Babylon comes in and deports Judah and they still reign over the land. King Cyrus of the Persians comes in and lets the people go back to their land and build the temple again and reestablish. But they're still under the reign of Persia. And then the king of Persia dies and his sons break up the territory and now they're under a, a, a subsidiary of Persia for a little while. And then they fight a rebellion and they get about 200 years of freedom. And then Rome comes in and they take over the nation again. And it's just empire after empire after empire after empire comes in. And you can imagine the people of God looking back to the words of Isaiah and going, okay, God, when's this going to happen? Where are you? Remember, a people who are radically honest with their God about their disappointments with him. You can imagine them going, what is going on? It looked like we were good. The Maccabees came in. They drove out the oppressors. We were, we were living our best life for a little while. And then all of a sudden, Rome comes in. God, when will it end? And that's where we find ourselves on the night that Jesus is born. That's where we find ourselves on the night that God's army of angels appear to some shepherds in a field and say, your king has come. And he was born in a manger. That's where we find ourselves when Jesus grows up and begins to declare that he is the king who has come. Begins to teach and, and receive the honor of others who would call him Christ, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the king who's come to rule over God's people. That's where we find ourselves when Jesus enters the picture. And Jesus lives his life and he teaches and he gathers a following of people who really do think he's this king. They really think that he's the guy Isaiah was talking about, that he is the king in the line of David who's going to come and rule over God's people and expand the nation to include anybody who would give their allegiance to him. This is where we are when Jesus is crucified by Rome. And once again, his followers, who are those same people who are asking God, where are you? When will the empires go away? When will we be free again? When will you bring this promised reign and this prosperity? When is it coming? And the followers of Jesus on the Holy Saturday, when Jesus is in the tomb, are wondering that same thing again. We thought it was him. We thought he had come. And then Sunday morning comes. And the tomb where they had laid the body of Jesus is found to be empty. 
And over the next 30 days, Jesus will appear before all of them, before he ascends into heaven in front of 500 people. And Jesus' followers, who were so despondent on the day that he was in the grave, will say, that's our king. That's the guy. That's our mighty God, our wonderful counselor, our prince of peace, our eternal father. Here is the king we've been waiting for. And they get so energized by this. They get so excited about this. These faithful Jewish boys go out and spread the news all around Jerusalem and Judea and begin to travel all the way through the known world proclaiming God's king has come. This era of prosperity is here. The reign of our King Jesus has arrived. And against all odds, against all hope, against all logic, Jewish people and Gentile people, barbarians and slaves and wealthy people and poor people and men and women and people of all backgrounds of life start to say, yeah, that Jewish king is my king. It makes no sense apart from the supernatural working of God. It makes zero sense that these people who had been walking in darkness would see the light of Jesus and say, yes, he's my king. And choose to live in the hope of his reign. It makes zero sense that a first century rabbi from Judah, from Judea, from, from Galilee, would become the king of the cosmos. It makes zero sense that this little traveling preacher from this little backwater of the Roman Empire would change the entire world. It makes zero sense that we put hope in him. But here's what we know. And here's what those first followers of Jesus knew. He rose from the dead. And that just doesn't happen. And if he rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if Jesus rose from the dead, it validates everything he said about himself and everything his followers said about him. And he is truly the king who has come. The king in whom we can put our hope. The king who brings in this era of prosperity, this era of peace. And as his followers, we get to live as though he is actually the king right now, because he is. And that's what it means to live in hope. We live in hope because Jesus rules and reigns over us now. And just like God made those promises of a coming king 2,700 years ago, Jesus has made a promise that he will come back. And he will right the wrongs. And he will end the war. And he will end the strife. And he will bring eternal peace and hope to his people. A hope that we can live in, in solidarity with our King Jesus. And because God's word is strong, and because God's word cannot be broken, and because God is always true to what he has said, we get to live as though that's the reality even now. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and to live and walk in hope is to live as though Jesus actually does rule and reign over the whole world. To live in faithfulness to him, regardless of what it costs us in the world. And it will cost. Because he hasn't come back yet. Because this rule, this, this perfect rule, hasn't been made, made physical for us. But we... 
as the followers of Jesus, we who have bowed our knee to him, we who have given up our sin, given up our rejection of God, and said, Jesus, I want to be holy as you are holy. I want to repent and turn away from my sin and follow you as my king, as my Lord, as my God, as my brother, as my savior. We get to live as though Jesus is king right now. And where we go, the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of King Jesus go with us. And that's what will remake the world. Until Jesus comes back and makes all these promises a physical reality, we are the carriers of those promises. We are the ones who carry the reign of Jesus with us. That's what it means to be the kingdom of God, to bring his light into dark places, to live as though Jesus is ruling and reigning because he is. That's what it is to live in hope. But this all begins with a pivot on our part. This all begins, the the hopeful life begins by giving of ourselves just as God has given to us. Looking upon our self-giving God, looking upon the God who has sacrificed everything for us, come to earth, lived as one of us, crucified upon a cross, risen again, it all begins by giving our lives to that truth, to that king. By coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm tired of my rebellion. I'm tired of running away from you. I'm tired of sin in my life. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse my heart of sin and rebellion? Would you bring your light into my darkness and give me hope in your good future? Jesus, I repent. I lay my sin aside. And I choose to follow you, my good king, my savior, my brother. That's where hope begins. And that's what I invite you to. Whether you've been following Jesus for decades or you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, the invitation today is to lay aside everything that would separate you from God and say, Jesus, I just want to be yours. I want to live in the hope that only you can give. I want to take this nonsensical, illogical step to follow you King Jesus, because I know your kingdom is far better than anything else I could get in this world. And I want to carry that kingdom with me everywhere I go. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that you have come as the King of Israel, that you have come as the King of God's people, and that in doing so, Jesus, you opened the borders, you expanded this nation of Israel to include us, to include us Gentiles, us who weren't born into it. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come as our good king and you welcome us into your kingdom. God, would you help us to bow our knees to you today, to proclaim that Jesus is our king, that you and you alone can save us from our sin and bring light into our darkness and give us hope for the future. God, would you empower us to live hopeful lives. Lives that declare Jesus is king and he rules and he reigns now. And I will be holy as he is holy. I choose to be holy as Jesus is holy. Only through your sacrifice and your resurrection and your ongoing reign in the presence of your Holy Spirit living within me. Jesus, I give you my life today. I surrender everything to you, yes, Jesus. to my mighty God, 
Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, my wonderful Counselor. My life is yours. Hallelujah. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.